The reason that Eric and Eric could read that first, or excuse me, John one twelve in French is because he worked hard to learn French. Uh, you know how hard he worked, and we prayed along with you guys through that language learning process. And I think he had to work harder than Amanda did at learning French, <laughs> so I'm told. Um, I remember before they left, they tried to start that language learning process here, and I could walk into that Baraka house, and he would be there doing his Rosetta Stone, and he would say, listen to this. Tell me the difference between these sounds. <laughs> this sounds the same. Uh, and yet it's all the difference in the world to the ear of a French speaker. Um, and trying to learn that way. There are different ways to learn language. You can learn language by classroom instruction, by some software like that, where you're just going through exercises and trying to do lessons and try to keep building slowly in your understanding of that language. I've never learned a language, so I'm not bilingual. I'm barely monolingual, if that's even a word. Maybe I'm non-lingual uh, to you, some of you probably. Uh, so, But there is that way of learning, slowly, kind of traditional instruction. There's another way, and that's what they ended up doing, is moving to France. Language learning by immersion, where you're just all in into the language and you're just surrounded by it and you just have to you just are thrown into the deep end of the pool and you're left to struggle until you finally figure out how to swim in this new language where one technique doesn't want to overwhelm you and wants to kind of ease you into it the other is overwhelming by design well, the, close, the closest I ever came to language learning, I was just thinking about this, is, is learning Greek in seminary. And you could either take a year of Greek, beginning Greek, or you could take a, like a one-month summer class of Greek. And it was kind of like immersion Greek, though we weren't speaking it in, in everyday life. So it is different. But uh, that's the route that I and most people went, was that intensive course. We, our professor called it gladiator Greek. Wade talked about Dr. Farnell on Sunday night and... This is it, right? You don't know what that means unless you were here Sunday night. But, um, but, but it was it was intense. And but what what we see is John begins his gospel account. Is John uses that immersion technique to introduce to us the word, the language, the communication of God. He he just we're thrown into the deep end of the mystery of Christ in the very first statement that he makes in the Gospel of John. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we go from this glorious, eternal, pre-incarnate, creating, revealing sustaining, light-giving, life-giving word, Jesus Christ, to verse 6. There was a man named John. What? We go from heaven to earth. We go from the eternal into time. We go from God to man, from creator to creature, from thee to just a man. What, what is going on here? 
Well, you, you keep in mind the purpose of John that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and we'll talk about throughout this series that John is writing a piece of propaganda unashamedly. He makes that purpose clear in John twenty thirty one. He wants to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that and that we would believe in Him, and there, and by believing we would have life in His name. That's why he's writing, and so he's he wastes no time in making his case. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what we're going to find is John is going to line up. Witness after witness to give testimony to who Jesus Christ is. You think of witnesses in a courtroom. That's kind of the scene that you should, you can have in mind here. These witnesses establish truth beyond a reasonable doubt to convince the judge, to convince the jury. And, and, and this is what, what again, what has happening here in the, in John's gospel account. The, the big idea of this text and that we'll see is that God's witness to his son calls for your verdict of faith in Him. The witness demands a verdict. John isn't simply writing to to um, inform our brains or to interest our imaginations. He's writing for to, to, to cause us to decide something about Jesus Christ. He's calling for a response. He wants us to reach a verdict about Jesus Christ. And we'll see many witnesses in John's gospel. We see God the Father. We see Christ himself bearing witness of himself. We see it in our text this morning. We'll see the Holy Spirit bearing witness to who Jesus is. We'll see Jesus' works bearing witness. We'll see the scriptures and the fulfillment of them in Christ's life and ministry. We'll see many other human witnesses. The disciples, the Samaritan woman, the crowds, and on and on. But in verse 6, we're introduced to one of the key witnesses. And it says, John the Baptist. And, and or we could maybe call him John the Witness. It's maybe a better name to describe what he, his role. He just here, he's just a man named John. So first, three things we're going to say this morning from these verses. And the first one is this. And I want you to open, we want to be open to, to, to hearing a witness testimony. The first thing we want to do is open your ears to hear witness testimony about the light. Just listen to what the witness says. Verse 6, read with me again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, because John is always next to Jesus in Scripture, it's easy for us to underestimate the influence of this man. Just a man named John. But compare, I mean, when you compare him to Christ, he's not much to look at. And no one is compared to Christ. But you put him next to you and me, it's different. You put him next to Peter, you put him next to to Elijah, you put him next to David, you put him next to Moses, you put him next to Abraham, he's head and shoulders above all of them. You know who says that? Jesus. He says in, in Matthew 11, 1, truly... And this, when he says that, that's that little formula in the Gospel of Matthew. Truly, I say to you, he's just saying, he's putting his hands on our shoulders and shaking us in love, saying, listen to what I'm about to say. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. His conception, his birth were miraculous. He was, 
He was born to these elderly, way past childbearing years parents. I mean, and, and they had not been able to conceive before. And yet God graciously grants this child to them. He's the only person in human history that we know was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in utero. Scripture tells us this. He was this bridge between the Old and the New Testament. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, though we find him written of in the New Testament. But Matthew eleven thirteen says that all the all the prophets in the law prophesied until something happened, until John. It's this dividing line in history. He wasn't just a prophet, though. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was sent by God as a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 43. He, in Elijah-like style, was very eccentric. He lived in the desert, in the wilderness. He wore camel hair clothes. He ate locusts and honey He preached this urgent, fiery, prophetic appeal for people to repent in light of the coming kingdom that was at hand. Those who did repent were baptized by John and they followed him. And God used him mightily in this way to prepare for the Messiah. He became legendary in the ancient world. He As late as Acts 19, we know that there were disciples of John who were still around. They're showing up again. They're not showing up just in Palestine. It's not like they were just kind of hanging out there. No, they've spread and they've migrated all the way, hundreds of miles away to Ephesus. And they're they're still followers of John the Baptist some 30 years after his death. That may be one of the reasons John front loads his gospel account with this word about John showing the place that he had in God's witness of his son because there may have still been those in Ephesus, which is likely where John wrote this gospel account, that were still clinging to John the Baptist even when he's writing this. It's almost like John the Baptist kind of cult. He was that significant of a figure. But the greatest of men was just a man. John was a mere man. Jesus is the divine word. John came, the text says. Jesus was. John was sent by God. Jesus is God. John came to testify about the light. Jesus is the true light. John was an instrument of faith. Jesus is the object of faith. And so it's all the difference in the world. And we see this is the role, though, that John had in God's wisdom. He's sent by God as a witness to bear forth a message. And first thing we'll see under here, the message of the witness, briefly. The message of, of John, the witness, had nothing to do with himself. It was all about Christ. He came as a witness to Jesus. He came to bear testimony about the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He told people, I'm not worthy to even loosen the, the ties on this guy's sandals. He's the Messiah. Don't confuse us. I'm like a little candle. He's the sun. It's all the difference in the world. The message of John was about Jesus. He didn't come to talk about himself. He came to talk about the light. And all eyes were directed to Jesus. 
So that's his message. And, and tied to that message is this motive of this witness. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And then there's this little purpose statement that all might believe through him. Now that little uh, uh, pronoun him is referring to John. John, though, is the, as I said, is this instrument of faith. Through John's ministry, people might believe in Christ. The goal of his ministry was not to gain a following for himself so that people would know his name, but that through his ministry, people would believe in Jesus and follow him. He wanted to be used by God to bring people to believe in Christ. And then you see the method of his witness. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. That word bear witness is to testify about, to tell the truth about the light. Now, how many of you ever have ever borne witness about the light? I'm not talking about of Christ, but just in a very physical sense. Think of the analogy here. You ever borne witness, Dr. Hutzel, is he here? He doesn't count because he's got a Ph.D. in uh, light, <laughs> fiber optics. Um, but when you when you have someone say you have someone new to your house, we have this international student uh, cookout at our house on Labor Day, and we have to be careful to get our house cleaned up because they will walk in, and this is just that cultural difference. They'll they'll ask to see every bit of our house, and so no pressure, honey, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But we know it's coming, and they'll want to they'll want to look in closets. They'll want to look at everything. And but when you're giving a tour of your house to somebody, so you move in a new house, you don't you don't usually turn on a light switch and say, "You probably didn't notice, but let me point out something." There, there's now light in this room. Did you notice that? There's light in here. If you did say something like that, they would probably mysteriously uh, get a text, and and it would be urgent, and they'd have to leave because they'd think you were crazy. Um, of course there's light. That's obvious. Um, who needs to be told about light? Well, A.W. Pink, who's got a big, thick, but very good commentary on the Gospel of John, he comments along these lines. He says, weigh well these words in light of verse 8. They are solemn, pathetic, tragic. Perhaps their force will be more evident if we ask a question. What, when the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of the fact? Who need to be told that it's shining? The blind. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness to the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen fallen condition. This is what John came to do. He came to tell blind people about the light. This is what we do. This is what Eric and Amanda are going to do. They're going to Senegal to testify about the light to those who are blind and in darkness. They're, they're, they're going to those whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, Paul says. To those that are blinded by Islam blinded from seeing the hope and the goodness and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they go and they say, there's light. Light has come. 
It's for us too. What do, what do we do? We, we're, there, there are people all around us who are blind to the truth about Jesus. There may be some in this room. You're, you're hearing this. This is me testifying. There's light. You don't have to go on in darkness. But there are people all around us that, that we go out these doors to testify about the true light to those who are blinded by other false gods. It may not be Islam. It may be for those around us. But, but blinded by the God of just money, the God of entertainment, the God of self, whatever gods are that blind us from the truth. So leverage your life. This is what we've been talking about. That's not a little summer project. That was fun. But it's something that's to define us, that we leverage our lives so that we can see people believe in Christ through us. That's what John's purpose was. He wanted people to believe through him. Be an instrument of faith, pointing people to the object of faith, Jesus Christ. Saying there's light, light. But John, John wasn't just sent by God to tell facts about Jesus. He's not just setting things straight in the news media and the false, false reports that were given about Jesus in his day. He's not, God didn't send him, God didn't burden John's heart simply to pass along information about the light. He sent John to call people to respond to the light. And that's the next thing we see. The witness testimony demands this verdict. And the second thing we need to do is this. Open your heart to believe and receive this light. This light. Light is revealed, verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That just drips with messianic fulfillment there. That Matthew 4.16, he's quoting Isaiah 9.2. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region, in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus, the true light, the genuine, not counterfeit, authentic light, was coming into the world. And he gives light to everyone. What does that mean? How does Jesus, how does he enlighten everyone? Some of your translations may say. Is this the light of the general revelation that Paul talks about in Romans 1 that through creation and through the conscience all people have this awareness of God? Is it, is it the light of provenient grace as Methodists and Wesleyans talk about where Jesus, the light, gives everyone the ability to choose or reject salvation? Is that what is being said? Or is it the inner light that is talked about that we have this, that, that God gives to all people, like this kind of guiding light? That's not it. This is not about inner illumination. This is about the objective light that came into this world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where He makes the invisible God visible, where He, where he makes visible the truth. And, and, and this is what's being talked about. And this forces a decision. One commentator said it shines on every man and divides human, the human race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does. They flee lest their deeds should be exposed by this light. But some receive this revelation. In John's gospel, it is repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and it forces a distinction. So the light is revealed and, and that, that re- revealing of the light demands this response. And that's what John goes on to show through these opposite responses in verses 10 to 13. Light rejected. That's one tragic and ironic choice that is made. 
Verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Just the one who made all things. The, 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 the word of, of John 1, 1 to 3. That created all things by the word of his power and holds all things together. He was in the world he made. Creator confined himself to creation. It's crazy. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Jesus made them. He's actively holding them together by the word of his power. But they refused to know, refused to acknowledge him. They were so spiritually blind they didn't recognize their own maker. They loved their sin. They loved darkness and ran from the light. But it's worse. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people, Israel, God's chosen people, his chosen nation, Jesus' chosen nation. Jesus chose these people. Father, Son, Spirit chose Israel. The, the ones who were not a people, but God made them a people. The ones who were entrusted with the scriptures. The ones who God gave and sent prophets. The, one, the ones who, to whom God made promises. The ones to whom God cut covenants with. The ones God had been preparing a way for for thousands of years. The ones to whom God could have wiped them out over and over again because of their disobedience. But he was patient and long-suffering and forbearing. I should have recognized their promised Messiah. He had been foretold and prophesied in their scriptures, but he wasn't the kind of Messiah they envisioned or hoped for. They wanted a military Messiah, political Messiah, who would deliver them from Rome's power and give peace and prosperity to them as a people again. They didn't see their need for a savior from sin. So they rejected the true light. It's tragic. It's, it's, what's crazy and even more amazing though is some 2,000 years later after all of the witness of history, after all, we, have, we carry around the scriptures and we know the scriptures and the scriptures are everywhere. And we have the witness of lives changed by the gospel and, the, and the, from Pentecost on and the Holy Spirit coming and just seeing lives transformed through Jesus Christ, we have all of this witness and yet people still reject Him today. They still reject the true light. They, they, they pursue counterfeit lights. They, 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 they look for light elsewhere. They're as close, those, those substitutes, money, success, morality, performance... Social connections, all of those other things that we look for, look to for light, all of those things are as close to the true light as a lightning bug is to lightning. They're just fake. They're, they're, they ring hollow. But not everybody has turned their backs on Christ. That's the thing we see. Not everybody's scattered like cockroaches when the light switch is flipped on. There's those who receive the light. Light received, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is true in all realms. Some of the most beautiful words are some of the most simple words, aren't they? When I, in the summer of 1997, I asked Brooke that simple question, will you marry me? And one word response was, 
all I wanted to hear, yes. Oh, simple but beautiful. This is, we, we have this, this demonstrated here in, in verse 12 the, with just two letters in the Greek, three letters in the English. We have this little small word that gives us so much hope, but, but. What a, God does not deal with us in the way our sin deserves. He holds out this way for rescue from condemnation, but, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the rights to become children of God. Those who receive Jesus are given these credentials to be members of, of God's family. And that word receive is very critical in this verse. And we'll see it again throughout John. And if somebody asks you what it takes to be a member of the family of God, you would be right on target if you said that what you have to do is receive Christ. That's, that's it. That's the only requirement. What does it mean to receive Jesus? It's not mysterious. It doesn't require learning another language to, to figure this one out. To receive Christ is the opposite of not knowing Christ. The opposite of rejecting Christ. What we saw in verse 11. It means to welcome Him into your life. John further defines it as believing in His name. Those are synonymous. To receive Him is to believe in His name. His name is who Jesus is in His person. That the eternal Word made flesh. It has on view all of, all of what was accomplished through Christ. His dying on the cross is a substitute for our sins. Rising again from the dead. Believing in His name. It means you stop relying upon your own merit. Upon your own works. Upon your own performance. Upon what you do to make yourself right, for, right with God. And, and, and instead you rely completely and totally upon what Christ did on the cross. That's to believe in His name. It means you come to grips with the fact that the only hope you have of standing before God. And not facing the full fury of His wrath. Is the fact that Christ died and you're trusting in what He did for you alone. That's what these students that share their testimonies, that's their confession. It wasn't me, it was what Christ did. That's my only plea. It's not about going to church, it's not about about being a good kid, it's not about being baptized, it's not about any kind of, it's not about morality, it's about Christ. It's what He did to die in my place, rise from the dead. That's their plea, and that's, that's the plea of every child of God. But those who receive Christ, who believe in His name, they have the right then, the authority to become children of God. A legitimate claim to the family of God. This is like a birth certificate that proves you're the child of your natural father. The fact, though, that, that, that those who believe become children of God, it, it means that all people are not God's children in, in that sense. To become a child of God requires a spiritual new birth. And that's the last thing that we see here in verses 12 and 13. Is just as so we, we open our ears, we want to hear the testimony about who Christ is. We want to hear the testimony about the light. We want to open our hearts to believe and receive it, not reject it. Not to, not to refuse to acknowledge Him. And then we want to open our eyes to just see the precious gift and privilege and the glory and the splendor. Of what is open to us. And in this new relationship of belonging to the light. 
We have a new family. He gave the right to become children of God. That is an incredible statement. The God who flung, we talked about this last week, the God who flung ten octillion stars into space and made them with with a single word and they're there. And He holds them all together and He knows them all by name. The One who made and sustains all things by the word of His power. He gives us the right to become His children. We've got to hold that truth close to our hearts. We've got to guard that at all costs. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil, they all want to detract us and take us away from that reality that we can be God's children. Not in and out of the family. We're, we're brought in if we're, we by faith into His family and we'll never be taken away again. Because we always want to go back to the fact like I've got to keep earning God's approval. I've got to keep this performance up. I've got to do better. God must not be happy with me. I miss my quiet time. No, no. He gives you the right by receiving Christ, by believing in His name, to become His children. That's glorious. I mean, John doesn't, doesn't get over this. He later, 1 John 3, 1, he's just flabbergasted. See, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's just saying, I, I can't believe it. We're children of God. God didn't have to adopt us. He didn't owe us anything. He wasn't obligated to bring us into His family. But in His love, as we receive Christ, we become His children. It's adoption. What a glorious privilege. What a glorious privilege. I mean, it's this that fuels, I thank God for the adoptions that we've seen in this church and in a human form. And this is what's got to fuel that. We've got two young families that I know of. There may be others of you that are thinking and maybe already planning. I don't have to know everything, but, uh, but I know the works and the Gilrys are both in different stages of pursuing adoptions. It's good. This is good. And what's got to compel us and even in that task is the just the overwhelming grace that God has given to us in adoption. That's what sets our heart on fire for that. And and but, but what a what a privilege. Uh, adoption um, but before Jesus the true light came into this world, that was not possible. Christ had to come. And, and this grace of adoption into God's family it, it comes by the grace of the new birth. That's the second thing. We have this new birth. Verse 13. We're children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That receiving Christ is what we do from our perspective, but giving new birth is what, is what God does. Our new life is of God. That's the simple statement of it at the end of verse 13. It's His doing. And... and and Jesus anticipates some kind of objections and questions. So he says, some would say that, that God would save men because of their racial or ethnic background. But, but John, John says, it's not of blood. It's not by your, it's not by, by your Jewishness. That's not it. It's not, it's not because that blood is flowing through your veins. It's not if you can trace your genealogy to Spurgeon or Edwards or Luther or Calvin or Apostle Paul or anybody. It's not, that's not it. Your, your, your genealogy isn't what brings you to salvation. It's not that. Some would say that God saves men because of their sincerity. That, that, that it's 
John says, no, it's not of the will of the flesh. That's that's picture. This is passionate. That someone who's passionate about spiritual things. That's not enough in and of itself. It's not of the will of man. It's not because of religious activity or planning to, to assure ourselves right standing with God. That's not it. It's no, no amount of human work or ingenuity will ever bring us to God. It's not it. It's of God, he says. It's of God. Now, some of as I know some of you, you choke on the doctrine of election like it's a chicken bone in your throat. And, and, and I, I, I understand it, but that is not the effect God intends. This, this should cause us, our hearts, to just burst forth with praise and thanksgiving to God. As we realize our, it's our salvation is, is, is of no merit of our own. It's all of Him. It's His doing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. No, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that anyone should boast. I mean, there's mystery here that we can't fully resolve. It's our responsibility to believe in Christ for salvation. It's our responsibility to bear witness to Christ and to urge other people to receive Christ, to believe in Him, in His name. But whenever we believe in Christ, we can't take credit for our salvation. All we can say is, if, if, if God had not graciously chosen me and given me new life, I would be lost forever. It's all glory to Him. Again, that's His testimony. It's God, to you be the glory. I just, I just want to end with just a, a couple, few statements. Just, I was just thinking, this, I rewrote my introduction last night. Our neighbors had some crazy loud party going on all night. And I mean, till like 3.34 in the morning. And I was laying in bed about 3.30 this morning, rewriting my conclusion to the sermon. So if it's weird, I'm sorry. I'm just, it's sleep deprivation. But I was just thinking of what it means to be a child of God. Just thinking of passages and the preciousness of this reality. I thought more when I woke up <laughs> this morning, but I just a couple of things. What are some of the privileges of being adopted children of God? We have uh, that passage in Romans 8 came to mind. The witness of the Holy Spirit in us that gives us assurance. That the Spirit Himself, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a powerful thing. We have deliverance from the fear of judgment from God. We don't have the spirit of slavery leading to fear, he says in the verse before that. But we have the spirit of of adoption, spirit of freedom. Connected to that, he goes on to say that we, we, we can now call God Abba Father. We don't worry about this frown of God, it's anger. God, there's, not a, there's not an ounce of wrath reserved for us. Because it was all born upon Jesus Christ. God only looks at us with love in His heart. And He says, you call me Abba, Father. We can, if we don't say it flippantly, we can say to God, Daddy. That's the, that's the meaning of that word. That's incredible. We have, we have heirship with Jesus Christ. The privilege of heirship. And He goes on in verse 17 of Romans 8 there. It's not... It includes both suffering and glory. But we're identified, we're joint heirs with Christ Jesus. And we, we, we often think we're like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. We think of ourselves more as slaves than we do as sons. But, but we've got to reorient our thinking and think we're heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ Jesus. We, we have now the loving discipline of our Father. 
He has no wrath at all reserved in his heart for us, but he disciplines us for our good. He's affirming to us through discipline that we're his true sons, that he's affirming us that, that, that he's going to direct us to safety from sin. He loves us enough to care for us and to take us away. That God's discipline is perfect, it's loving, it's corrective, it transforms us, it, and He only provides it to His sons. And we have this, we also have this new relationship to one another. That the church then becomes a family. A family. That, that our membership into this family has far-reaching implications. That, that we're not joined together by a common interest in religion. Not because we're just kind of a similar situation in life. That's not what unites us together. We are brought into this cosmic reality called the church. We're brought into community. I thank you for your article this morning, brother. And he, if you haven't read the article, just keep Kleenex nearby and read it. And and home is home is where community is. And and to say that the church is a family is not to just define what it is and give some definition. It's to it's to describe even the character of it. There's closeness, there's reliance, there's openness, there's bearing of life, sharing of life together, bearing of burdens together, sharing in joys together. That's part of the implications of this. So, we, we could go on and on with implications of this reality of our adoption in Christ. But what I, what I, what I want you to consider is what John wants you to consider is that this witness, this evidence, what he's presenting, it calls for a choice. I would just urge you, if you have not, if you have not experienced what these three young people described this morning, if you, you may have been in church your whole life, or this may be your first time here, if you've not experienced new life in Christ, forgiveness of sins, if you don't have that hope of eternal life, if you still are in darkness, and you may not even recognize it, you don't know about the light because you, you've never had your eyes open to it. Talk to one of us. We would love to share more about Jesus Christ. If you know the gospel, you don't have to talk. You can, you can pray right there and receive Christ. Believe in His name. And become a child of God. This reality can be, can be yours this morning. For all of us. Let's revel in our, in our identity as God's children. Through singing, expressive singing. Let's rejoice as we worship. This is worship as we See these students come and be baptized. Worship for them. Worship for us as we just get to hear people testify to God's grace in their life. And so let's rejoice with thanksgiving together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, how we thank you, God. Again, see what, behold, what manner of love you have given to us that we would be called children of God. Such we are. Thank you for the new birth. Thank you that we're part of a new family. May we live out of that reality every day, God. May we go forth from here as witnesses of Jesus Christ because we have this new identity and that we would go to those in darkness and say, Light, light, as we point to Jesus. We ask in His name. Amen.